Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, the 100 Black Men of Atlanta. Well, they have an anti-gun violence campaign focusing on on Black Youth, and we'll hear all about that. Also this hour, the transit and mobility nonprofit Propel ATL has an infrastructure wish list to help decrease bike and pedestrian fatalities, as well as ways to make Atlanta more bike-friendly. And also, it's a harrowing statistic. In swimming pools, Black children ages 10 to 14 years of age drown at rates 7.6 times higher than white children. So the YMCA of Metro Atlanta is offering summer swim lessons and also encouraging families to offer all learn together. Those conversations coming up, but first this. Georgia didn't fare so well in terms of a 2022 scorecard on state health system performance titled How Did States Do During the COVID-19 Pandemic? It was released by the New York-based Commonwealth Fund. Now, overall, Georgia was ranked 44th, and those metrics used include health care access and quality, service use and costs, health disparities, and health outcomes during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. Now, in a statement to Closer Look, Governor Brian Kemp spokesperson Katie Byrd said in part, quote, Governor Kemp prioritized protecting lives and livelihoods throughout the pandemic. He was responsive to the needs of the medical community, hospital systems, and insight from our Department of Public Health, and he kept Georgians safe, the, uh, and he kept Georgians' safety the most priority. Close quote. Now we'll have more on this report next week on Closer Look. In other news, Georgia Republican Congressman Barry Loudermilk led a tour of the U.S. Capitol complex the day before the January 6th insurrection. Newly released surveillance footage shows Loudermilk guiding visitors as they took photos of security desks, hallways, and tunnels leading to the Capitol. And WABE Sam Greenglass has more. The congressional panel investigating the attack says one person on the tour marched toward the Capitol on January 6th, threatening Democratic members of Congress. We're coming in like white on rice for Pelosi, Nadler, (laughs) Schumer. We're coming to take you out. Loudermilk previously said he didn't lead any tours of the Capitol, but footage shows Loudermilk leading people through House office buildings that connect to the Capitol. Loudermilk says Capitol Police have cleared him of any wrongdoing. He's declined to answer questions from the January 6th committee. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. Georgia immigrant rights advocates are marking the 10-year anniversary of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program by calling on Congress to create a permanent pathway to citizenship for immigrants who were brought here as kids. And Emily Wu Pearson has that story. DACA provides eligible immigrants who were brought to the U.S. when they were kids a way to get a Social Security card, work permit, driver's license, and deferred deportation. Georgia currently has about 20,000 DACA recipients in the state, the eighth largest group in the country. 
More than 75% are part of the state's workforce, and a third are married and have started families of their own. But a circuit court trial questioning if DACA is constitutional looms ahead in July. Philip Connor is a senior demographer on immigration for advocacy group Forward.us. Not only have you grown up here as a DACA recipient, you have also started your own family, and now that situation is kind of in peril as you look forward to the future. For the last 20 years, the DREAM Act, a bill that would pave a pathway for citizenship for those in the DACA program, has failed every time it's been introduced. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. And finally, the city of Atlanta has opened a cooling center in the old Fourth Ward. Now, the city says the old Martin Luther King Jr. Recreation Center will be open from noon until 7 in the evening daily through Friday. Water and snacks will also be available. And with heat advisories in effect statewide, Georgia public health officials are warning residents to stay hydrated and stay in the shade when possible. Heat, of course, is one of the leading weather-related causes of death in the U.S., according to the National Weather Service. And a reminder, let's check on our older neighbors as well as anyone who might be without air conditioning. This is Closer Look. We're back in a moment. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at CF greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a message, and it's very clear. We want to reduce gun violence, especially amongst the populations we serve. That's from the organization 100 Black Men of Atlanta. Now, they are part of the National 100 Black Men of America, which is actually headquartered here in the city. And this anti-gun violence campaign is using many various platforms to not only reach, but include black youth in the messaging Joining me now with more is Richard and Joshua Bird, members of 100 Black Men in Atlanta. Now, Joshua, the nephew, chairs the Anti-Gun Violence Committee. And Richard has been with the organization for decades, dating back to the 1980s. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you for having us today. Richard Bird, I want to start with you. We've been hearing, obviously, there's been an uptick in violence, and not just here in Atlanta, but throughout the nation. But we're also seeing an increase in violence among our youth. Just want to start our conversation with you reflecting on all of this and, and what do you think is happening here? Well, I think that guns have become prevalent, prevalent in our society and we're moving toward a gun-carrying society. Uh, I think that the reaction that we see from the, our children is that they don't possess the skills or the ability to solve conflicts in a, in a different way. And so I think that they're turning to violence in doing that. Hmm. Joshua, what do you think? Well, it's definitely a society that uh, is not unfamiliar, unfortunately. Uh, growing up in the 1980s, you know, we in the 90s, we saw a lot of violence, and we saw it, it reside for, you know, um, kind of die down for a couple of decades in its back. And it's unfortunate because I saw it a lot in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and I've been on this mission. I, I tell folks to sort of save myself to sort of help folks who grew up in similar circumstances. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are living under those same pressures, and and it's not a it's not a good way to live. It's not a good way to grow up. I've talked with folks, advocates who do the work that you all are doing, who work with youth, and a lot of them tell me, you know, Rose, yes, it is about uh, the inability to handle conflict, but many will point to some other systemic issues, particularly in the communities. Um, not an excuse, but might provide an explanation in terms of poverty uh, being one. And we know that, uh, unfortunately, for some kids, they turn to the gangs or they turn to some type of activity because they want to get the means that they don't have. How do you see that playing a part in this as well? Yeah, absolutely. As a criminal justice professor, you know, you look at criminological theory and a lot of folks will say, well, I don't want to hear the theory. I want to hear about poverty. There are also other people who grew up in poverty who are not making those same decisions. Mm -hmm. But you actually have to step back and look at it. What does poverty prevent one from doing? Mm -hmm. A lot of what we do is try to expose students to uh, other ways of handling situations. When you travel, you see people of different cultures. You interact with different folks. Mm -hmm. um, when you have the financial means to go to the Hyde Museum of Arts, when you have the financial means to go to different places, you learn new things. Mm -hmm. And so your, your, your skill set, your toolbox is enhanced. What poverty does is it almost forces so many students. So many of our students say they've never been to the other side of town. Yeah. I was doing a listening session. We were doing a listening session at the Department of Juvenile Justice where students said, we went to the other side of town. We went to the to Buckhead for the first time. That's where we stole the car. And you know why we got caught? We didn't know our way around. Mm -hmm. We'd never been there. And so this idea of poverty, it, it prevents folks from being exposed to different people, different um, ideas about how do you interact. Mm -hmm. And you end up growing up almost in this bubble where everyone acts the same, and if that bubble has a dominant culture where guns are the tool that we use to resolve differences, mm -hmm. then that's all they know. Mm -hmm. Richard, you are you from Atlanta, right? This is Indeed. your hometown, Indeed. so and, and you're a proud Morehouse man. I got to get that out in there. Thank I you. want you to reflect back to when you were in your teens and what community meant to you, because I think a lot of folks also will talk about. Atlanta communities have changed, particularly in black neighborhoods, that the community structure is different. So even if a, a person, a young person, didn't have what they needed, quote unquote, needed in that household, they got it from the community through various other organizations or whatnot. You see that as also being an issue here, that communities don't have that, that strength, those other ties, those other options for youth to get involved with. Well, I think that the community is is coming forth with a lot of another lot of uh, other options for our children. I think part of it is that there's a culture of violence that we need to interrupt. That is why our program includes not just the intervention mm -hmm. that Joshua is doing in our school systems now, but we're talking about a messaging part. We're talking about an awareness program. An awareness program just like we had with the cigarette smoking with seatbelt and with covert. Mm -hmm. And what we need is to get the media to help us out and help us to engage the community and change the, the thinking of the community. We see gun violence 
as a public health issue. And what we think needs to happen is that there should be a public health response, just like cigarette smoking. And so we are going to be calling on mainstream media, social media, to help us by developing a public service announcement that can help us make gun violence a pariah in our community. And we should note that the CDC has declared, uh, much like racism, they've declared gun violence a public health threat. And when you talk about, Richard, though, when you talk about engaging the media, is this the platform that you think is best to reach the communities that you want to reach? Or do you have to actually be out in the community as well? Well, part of it is that we're out in the community with what Joshua is doing with our intervention modality. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing when we start talking about changing the minds of the community is what we did with cigarette smoking, that we showed the devastation that was taking place in the community, and it had people to change their minds about smoking cigarettes. We didn't stop everybody from smoking cigarettes, Mm -hmm. but we put a large dent into Mm -hmm. it. And so we can do the same thing with gun violence, I believe. Joshua, with this campaign, where does it begin then for you all? What are those areas that you got to hit first? Yeah, the first thing is being sensitive to what our youth and, and the general public is going through. Just Because you don't want to sound like you're preaching. Absolutely. Because, you know, when we're the age, <laughs> folks telling us, even though what they told us, was right, told us was right, what did we say? Y'all preach too much. Exactly. And that's exactly what one of our students at Best Academy said who, who uh, was a participant in our poetry, arts, and essay contest. He actually wrote an essay. And I asked him uh, today, in fact, he's down at our national conference in Hollywood, Florida. He'll be speaking to about 500 people. And I asked him, when it comes to the do's and don'ts, what works and what doesn't work around this gun violence culture and conversation? He said, well, the first thing is you have to be relatable. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't want to be preached to, but we want you to be sensitive to our needs because many of us are dealing with Violence, and we're dealing with the impact of death and, and gun violence in our homes. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be sensitive so that we'll open up and talk. But if you are preaching, if it is a one-sided conversation, they're really churned off by that. So then how do you begin to approach them so that it doesn't sound like that you're preaching? And sometimes if you, even if you want to bring in law enforcement, you have to be sensitive to that too because of the communication or the community policing issues that folks have it's a delicate balance one of the things that i thought was very important was that when we went into best academy we went into ivy prep academy and we went in with our conflict resolution if you will curriculum it was important to have a consistent message but also have the same person so that you can sort of build that rapport Mm -hmm. and what i walked away was that many students said we like consistency day one we won't open up maybe it's not day two or three Mm -hmm. but after a while they'll start to open up and they'll start to share and they'll be willing to have that conversation with you richard are you all focusing primarily with Atlanta Public Schools, or are you partnering with certain schools, or is it open just to certain communities? How are you all reaching these kids? We're first starting with the Atlanta Public School System, but we plan to go into any place where we can reach the population that's committing these crimes mm-hmm. and, and, and that's using gun violence. Uh, we have tried our best to try to get into the juvenile uh, 
uh, detention centers, mm-hmm. systems. Um, so we're, we're, we're trying to reach youth at where they are anywhere in our community, not just the public school system. We're looking at looking into the mayor's midnight basketball mm-hmm. and to see how we can connect with that and do the same kinds of things. What do you hear from students when you all talk to them? Rich, I'll stay with you for a moment. What do you hear? What are some, some of the things that they say in terms of how they deal with conflict resolution? Or even just in general, what's going on in their life? What do you hear? Well, Joshua works mostly with our, with our students. Uh, part of my campaign has been with what we did with our messaging. Okay. And that had to do with the billboards that we, we put up that uh, out front helped us to do. Mm-hmm. And then now, we're, uh, like I said before, we're trying to connect with the media to help us to do sort of, sort of the same things. What we did before when I had the program back in the early 1990s were at sports events. We had anti-violence messages. Mm-hmm. We had it at the Hawks game and the Brave, Braves game and the Falcon game. And we had it at our games that when we used to have the, the football game, the, mm-hmm. the uh, annual classic that the Hunter and Black Band put on. So my focus has been with the messaging part. Joshua has been de- dealing with primarily the intervention part of our program. Yeah, and bring that football game back, too. I like that. That was awesome. <laughs> Joshua, what do you hear from the kids? They, they want someone to be in their lives consistently. What I found very interesting when we spoke with with students who are under the supervision of the Department of Juvenile Justice was that students are encouraged to get involved with sports. I never thought about this, but sometimes students don't make the team. Right. And everybody is not everybody don't want to play ball. They don't want to play ball. So what do we have in place that is going to catch all students or give all students an outlet. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things they looked at, they, they said that mentoring really works. Unfortunately, it's not consistent enough. Mm-hmm. I need you Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, not just once a yeah. week. So they want someone who's there. And that is that is the reason why we hear so much about gangs uh, and that gang culture being part of this gun violence, because as soon as that consistency stops, there is someone there who can be there on a consistent basis. So they definitely want consistency. Mm-hmm. They also want someone who's going to listen to them mm-hmm. and they feel like are relatable and not preaching, as we talked about earlier. And so they're, they're, they're wanting almost a mentor, which is one of the, the staples of our program with 100 Black Men. It is. But do you have enough mentors? We don't. And that's why we're calling on the community. We're looking to partner with any and every organization in the city of Atlanta who's willing to work with us. And what I mean by that is our anti-gun violence committee is a committee that's open to the public. Mm-hmm. We've had individuals who've lost several children come to our committee meetings. We've met with the Atlanta police chief. We've met with the uh, special agent in charge with the Georgia, Georgia Bureau of Investigation who focuses on gang and gun violence. Uh, we've, we've met with uh, the Department of Juvenile Justice, APD officers generally. We've heard from a lot of folks, but we welcome anyone from the community who wants to make a difference because we can't do it alone. And what's happening is that our, our anti-violence committee meets every second Thursday at Flipper Temple AME Church. Mm-hmm. And to be a member of our 100 Black Men's anti-violence committee, you don't have to be a member of the 100 Black Men. We're seeking anybody in the community, mm-hmm. any group in the community that can help us interrupt this culture of violence. Summer is here, pretty much. Um, there are some concerns. I've spoken with Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens. He's talked about that there are 3,000 jobs available for kids or youth 14 to young adults up to t- age 24. 
How concerned are you about this summer? You know, we're coming out of, we're still in the pandemic, but, you know, we're coming out of some looser restrictions, obviously, than last year and, and the year before. What concerns do you have if you all can't at least be part of the solution and get more kids in, involved in, in not just the campaign, but seeking other alternatives in terms of the, the deadlier outcome here? Richard. Well, economic opportunity and education is a part of what we do with our students. And we're always seeking economic opportunities for our students, internships and uh, after-school jobs, uh, summer jobs. And so we'll be working with the mayor to try to make sure that that's a success. Joshua, I, I saw you were doing some spoken word. Uh, you know, I do my homework here. <laughs> How big? How much is that a part of what you are able to do with the kids? And that's, that's expressive, you know, it's a way, way for them to get it out, whether they write or whether they do spoken word. Yeah, it, it's definitely a, a, a point of emphasis. Part of our curriculum has has discussed with them and we work with them on healthy behaviors. A lot of time that poetry, the arts, the essay, it helps them mm -hmm. uh, work through their emotions, work through uh, their feelings. And that's been really successful. Going back to your point about how concerned are you? Mm -hmm. It is a major concern. Uh, research shows that crime does literally heat up during mm -hmm. the summer months. And one of the reasons um, that happens, I believe, is that at school you do have who we would encourage students to reach out to. Uh, someone they trust, a mm -hmm. teacher, if there is a conflict. They're on their own in the mm -hmm. summertime. Uh, and, and you talked about uh, in the summer months being without AC. Mm -hmm. So many of our families are without this. So they find themselves outside for longer periods mm -hmm. of time. And so they're on edge, they're anxious, uh, anxiety. They don't have a job. They want to go do things and they can't. And so all of those things really are a major concern. So the jobs, to your point, um, are really important. But just going back to the poetry, uh, I opened up our program at Best Academy with a piece called I Want Out. And it talked about um, a lot of things that students are dealing with. Can you uh, drop some bars for me? I I'll do a piece of it because right. it's rather long. That's um, okay. Uh, but it's uh, a dying breed cries a creed as it bleeds. Can you hear it? I want out, young tears, they shout in place of their broken spirits. Hopeless lyrics paint illusions of honeys, cars, and cash. It's total enslavement. They're now addicted to the radio blast. A miscasted seed in the city is facing years down the road. But not because he wanted to, but because he was told that school wouldn't cool. You see, he broke the rules as he worked on the block, serving crack to kill his neighbors as he struggled with pot. I want out, his spirit screamed, but he can let his face know because peer pressure. Peer pressure was on his back and his reputation couldn't fold, so he called her a whoa, the one he loved with his soul. And guess what, she responded to him because nobody was there to show her the way. Her mom, she worked all day, she was a struggling single, fed up with her baby daddy because every night he'd mingle on the streets with phony fellas who were jealous of him because he had a family who really cared about him. I want out, mama would scream with her daughter on her side to the top of her lungs. She would yell and run and hide over my dead body, her baby daddy would say. As he delivered deadly punches that discolored her face. I want out, her daughter also cried, but to deaf ears in a home. You see, mama couldn't hear her cry because she was screaming all along, but the cell phone, <laughs> it was there to listen and baby girl had to vent. So it was, whoa, what you want? That's how a boyfriend would begin. And it goes on and it deals with the different elements. And at the end, it talks about how one guy is dating another guy's girlfriend and their friends. And it ends up with a conflict. And ultimately, 
the police are called and ultimately a young man is shot and killed and everybody wanted out of that situation. And that encapsulates everything that we've been talking about today. Joshua and Richard Bird, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you and 100 Black Men of Atlanta for what you're trying to do and what you continue to do. Thank you. From WAB in Atlanta, you're listening to Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Summer, yeah, it's basically here. Let's go ahead and just celebrate. But you know what? The allure of swimming is always present. But there's something we should be serious about. According to the CDC, here in the U.S., more children, ages from 1 to 4, die from drowning than any other cause of death except birth defects. For children ages 1 to 14, drowning is the second leading cause of unintentional injury death after motor vehicle crashes. And, for, and swimming pools, black children ages 10 to 14 years drown at rates 7.6 times higher than their white counterparts. And black children and youth are more likely to drown in public pools, and white children and youth are more likely to drown in residential pools. Well, the YMCA of Metro Atlanta has programs with a focus on not just swimming, but also just general safety measures. And joining me now is Brianna Scott Greenberg, YMCA of Metro Atlanta Aquatics Director, and Beckley Shipley, YMCA of Metro Atlanta Group Vice President. Thank you both for taking the time. Hi, Rose. Brianna, let me begin with you. What age did you learn to swim? I learned to swim very old. I was 14 years old. Well, Becky, what about you? Gosh, I learned to swim probably when I was about six. Wow. Wow. So those statistics that I just mentioned coming into the this segment, Brianna, they're not lost on you. No, ma'am. Um, this entire interview is an honor because um, I've experienced those statistics. Look at me. It's okay. Statistics firsthand. Um, in 2016, my six-year-old niece had drowned. And that is when we, my family realized, um, where I realized the disconnect between the African-American community and swim lessons. Oh, Brianna, I'm so sorry. Um, our condolences. It's fine. It is something I've learned to heal from and the YMCA has helped um, me provide, my, you know, find my purpose and provide equality um, to provide a, a, something that I was not myself able to get until I was 14 years old. Becky, we've been hearing this disparity in drowning deaths. Let's be clear, this is not new. And that percentage as relates to black kids and other races. But the gap is not closing. Is this due to economics and just access to programs or a little bit of both here? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's access. I think that there's some misnomers around cost. Uh, there's also kind of this inherited fear of, of just stay away from the water. Otherwise, you'll drown. And and we know kids are naturally curious. And so that being your prevention uh, for drowning as a, as a parent doesn't necessarily work. And so it is important to kind of build awareness, but also comfort in the water. And, and Brianna can probably speak to how often we have kids who come swimming, who, who cry and scream and who are afraid to be in the water just because the acclimation didn't really happen um, with them very young. Brianna, so what do you take me through some of the that process? I mean, it, it's not some, for some kids. They want to jump right in. I know I was a camp counselor. Some kids want to jump right in. Others are like, lady, I'm not getting near that pool. You are not going to make me. What's your process of getting them used to just even getting in the water first? Um, my my personal process is to treat everyone as though they cannot swim. So that way I'm creating boundaries in teaching those children the fear that, you know, to respect the water 
that um, the water is fun, but it is also a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the YMCA has beautiful, beautiful um, lesson plans that we're able to use to teach children. So we're able to teach them th- those those overzealous children mm-hmm. how to um, properly enter and exit the water. Things like you know how to wait their turn, how to like I said before, just respect and fear the water. Is it easier with younger kids, Brianna, than some of the older kids? Absolutely. It's almost like it's easier to teach a younger child to read rather than an older child. Mm-hmm. So we get them while their brains are molding and we're able to teach them how to swim a lot faster than we would teach a, a 50-year-old. Mm-hmm. Becky, we mentioned, we talked about the economics of this and, you know, for some households, even just trying to afford a membership at the Y. And I know you all have sliding scale programs and, and other, there are other organizations that have programs, but how are you all reaching out to those communities that you so desperately want to take advantage? Uh, and we'll get to the programs in a, in a moment that you all have. Yeah, so it's, it is truly an, an intentional effort. Um, I, in order to kind of break that generational gap, we have to be intentional and go to communities um, where maybe they there's not a YMCA or there's not a parks and rec pool like where they would have had access and so one, it's intentional. One, it's also just making everyone aware that learning to swim is a life skill, that it's not a luxury. It's a necessity because, you know, the facts do show that the, those, the kids, 88% um, of the kids who have learned to swim, it, it does increase their chances to be safe around the water. So it is preventable. Um, and so we see that the facts from the CDC, um, that learning how to swim does give you a an 88% better chance um, to protect yourself in the water um, than those who never had those skills. Uh, And so um, one, it's intentional. Two, it's through partnerships. Um, We can't do this alone. Uh, We, you know, have limited resources. And so we partner with organizations like Children's who has kind of a like mission to keep kids safe. Mm -hmm. Um, We partner with uh, Medicaid providers. You know, they have kind of a network of of customers um, who would, kind of meet the demographics um, typically that would not have equal access to swimming lessons. And so partnering with them to make sure that they, through vouchers and through, you know, ways that they can get free and reduced swimming lessons through the YMCA, not just here in Metro Atlanta, but across the state of Georgia. Brianna, for families who were maybe no one uh, can swim, is it a good idea for the entire family maybe to take lessons together? Absolutely. It is always like I said with reading, it's always a good idea for families to do things together. When um, younger children see mommy or daddy getting in the water, it encourages them and it and uplifts them. Like, oh, if mommy can do it, I can do it too. And a lot of times um, with parents, if they see their their four-year-old can swim, it, um, it pushes them differently mm-hmm. to want to, oh, if my four-year-old can do it, I can do it too. So it's absolutely, um, I recommend if, you, if the family cannot swim, let's all hop in. Let's all learn to swim together. Brown, I have a listener says that she has a uh, two-year-old and wants to know if that's too young to start swimming lessons. Now, this is your ex- your expertise, so it's and it's going to be different for every child. We want listen, folks. Don't take your two-year-old if they're not ready. So, but in general, is that too young, or what do you think? Not. So the YMCA starts at about six months. We do parent and taught, and then we offer um, we offer swim lessons for two-year-olds. We have those lessons. Uh, with a two-year-old, will be a parent and taught lesson. With the mom, mom or dad will get in the water. Even grandma can get in the water with the baby, and we teach them all how to have this baby safe in the water. Wow! And you have swimming lessons for old public radio hosts who love the water, just are not a very strong swimmer. 
I'm just asking for a friend. Absolutely. Come on over, girl. Let me come on. Now, let's have a real conversation for a moment, Brianna and and Becky, bear with us. Let's have a real conversation because for some folks, the first thing they say is, I don't want my hair to get wet. I don't want that chlorine. That's a real thing for some folks. I'm not making fun of that. So I want listeners to understand this. That's a real thing in our community. How do you have that conversation with folks? Um, my, my biggest thing is our concern is safety. Mm-hmm. You know, we want you to learn to swim your hair. You can do it when you get out that, that, um, that, uh, the ability to learn to swim, you can't just learn, to, you know, that's something you want to, you want to jump on, you want to grab right away. Mm-hmm. I always tell them, uh, our pools are balanced. I am a CPO. So I, and, and most aquatics directors are, we balance our pools. We make sure our chemicals will not mess up your hair. They will not mess up your skin um or your clothes so come on in like don't don't let the water stop you you know get your hair wet that's what swimming get is on about. in there and if you're trying to make it look yeah if you got i have locks and listen it's a real conversation some folks are like i can't believe rose brought that up this is a real conversation don't email me about stuff that you don't know what you're talking about this is a real conversation so i'm glad that you said that becky so let's let's let our listeners know what what resources do you all have if someone wants to get their kid in a swimming program in terms of you know the cost and do y'all have programs do they have to be a member of the y yeah, so first of all you know we don't want money to be a barrier so we do offer a sliding fee scale as you mentioned and um, so no one will be turned away for the inability to pay also be on the lookout for a program called safety around water in your community we offer this free of charge and safety around water isn't necessarily swimming lessons but it does teach kids how to be safe around the water should they accidentally fall into the water which happens a lot they get pushed into the pool uh, they accidentally fall into the pool they accidentally fall off of dock mm-hmm. in the lake and so safety around water really is three simple concepts one is um you know jump push turn and grab, which is basically jump off the side of the pool, push off the bottom and then reach for the side. So teaching kids that the other is throw, don't go. So oftentimes we hear in Georgia, multiple victims happen in a drowning incident. And so teaching kids, you know, or a parents throw, throw a stick, throw a noodle, throw something. If it's, if it's in a pool, there will be like a, a life preserver or a rescue mm-hmm. ring throw something, don't jump in after and trying to, to save um, a, a struggling victim. And then three is um, this idea of swim, float, swim. So just over the weekend, we had a swimmer trying to cross the Chattahoochee and they don't, they don't realize the strength it takes, you know, to swim in moving water. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, swim, float, swim uh, gives you some rest to float on your back for a second and then turn back over and try to start swimming again. And so those are just three kind of simple concepts that we teach in safety around water but that's a mobile program so we have wise teaching it in apartment complexes partnering with the salvation army and again being intentional about finding communities who wouldn't have access or maybe they don't have a ymca or you know another kind of recreational pool in their community uh, good information uh, brianna we started this conversation and you talked about your family members six-year-old it was a six-year-old niece yes ma'am and what was her name her name was London, London, London Adams. Yeah. When you are teaching little ones, how often are you thinking about London? Every time. I'm a mother of three, and I make sure that my children, um, they know. I make sure that every child that I come in contact, I don't have to be in the water with them. If I see it, I make sure to correct it. I make sure the, the loss, the pain that my family felt, if I can help one family avoid that, then I, you know, I've I've done something right for her. 
Um, so every time I'm in the water, yes, I think of London. Every time I'm struggling, I'm, I need motivation. I think of her because she is the reason I'm able to sit on this call with you. She is the reason I'm able to work for the YMCA. She was the reason I have my purpose now. And I want to make sure that her, she she didn't die for no reason. You know, she, yeah. she, and so absolutely, absolutely. Every time I'm in that water, I think of my baby. Yes. Oh. Brianna Scott Greenberg, YMCA of Metro Atlanta, the aquatics director. And then we're also speaking with Beckley Shipley, YMCA of Greater Metro. YMCA of Metro Atlanta Group Vice President. Great information. Thank you so much for both of you for taking the time. We really appreciate it. This is good information. And we'll have a link to your website and all the programs that you all have. And, and listen, is there a family out there that needs a little help? Well, as Becky said, they will. Don't let money be a barrier in terms of getting lessons for you know, your kids or even the, the entire family. We're all here to help. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, Brianna. Thank you so much, Rose. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Here's a question. What's your favorite Atlanta neighborhood or path to bike through? Now, producer Daniel Razel says he enjoys the neighborhoods near Midtown High, which is formerly Grady High School, and downtown. Engineer Kevin Rinker, well, he'll bike anywhere. I myself enjoy Freedom Parkway and will one day attempt that massive hill inside Lionel Hampton Park. And Closer Look intern Lennox suggested if you're adventurous, try biking on DeKalb Avenue. Now, Lennox has a wicked sense of humor. We're all learning. Uh, but Atlanta has a diverse and robust biking community. We know that. So when it comes to infrastructure planning and mobility initiatives, well, we're always talking about ways to improve and include biking. For years, the organization called Atlanta Bicycle Coalition has advocated for not only safer streets, but various inclusion efforts for bikers. Now the nonprofit is called Propel ATL. Their mission is not changing that much. So let's welcome back to the program and still executive director, Rebecca Cerna. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. It's always a real pleasure to talk with you. You know, I was telling the Closer Look team that we've had many, many conversations. And I remember, ooh, this was years ago, one of the first questions I asked you years ago was to ask, to assess Atlanta being a bike-friendly city. Now, that was years ago. So I'm going to ask you now, how would you chart progress and, and then the continued challenges? Well, I'd say that other cities have made so much more progress that it's almost flattened out whatever strides we've made with some notable exceptions, of course, you know, we have a much more robust trail network than we did when we first started talking, as you referenced in the intro. Um, but it just feels like Atlanta has not kept up with some of the progress that we're seeing in other cities. Really? I thought you were going to give me like, we've gone from a, a D minus to a B minus, but uh, we got great inflation going on <laughs> over here. We we gotta we gotta get some extra credit going. Well, let me ask you this: Can you? What other city you think would be? And I don't want to use the word perfect model, Rebecca. But what other city do you think really has an an inclusionary uh, mobility and and, trans, and transit plan that includes biking as part of the mix? There, can you can you cite a couple? 
Yeah, I always like to look to the not so usual suspects. I think we've all heard enough about European cities so that are some kind of biking blissful haven. Um, so I've learned a lot from living in Colombia in Latin America in Bogota for a year mm. and um, took inspiration from their open streets initiative where they have a million people come out every Sunday and walk and bike and dance in the street. And it really shifts the dynamic of power on the streets, you know, because I think in the US we've really given over ownership of the streets to people behind the wheel of a vehicle. And yeah, vehicles are great for getting places, but you know, we have other kinds of vehicles out there today. Um, so cities like Bogota and other cities in Latin America and Asia um, and other world cities, I think are doing a lot more um, than maybe a lot of American cities are um, in integrating different ways of getting around. Cause a lot of people don't care how they get around. They just mm -hmm. wanna get there and they wanna feel good while they're doing it. What do you say to folks that say, we understand the initiative, but when you look at Atlanta, the city of Atlanta, okay, proper city of Atlanta, and it's, it's infrastructure in terms of how the streets are designed, the way the sidewalks are, you can't put a bike lane on every street, although I'm not saying this is what some people say, you can't put a bike lane on every street, that infrastructure-wise, it's just not, the city will only be able to get so far in terms of its bicycle friendliness. Do you buy that? It's all a choice. You know, um, our city planners and leaders decided in the 40s and 50s to intentionally place highways in black neighborhoods and look at the damage that caused sure. and the tremendous displacement um, that we're still de dealing with and have, I think, some opportunities to maybe start to rebuild some of that through the federal infrastructure funding. Um, but, you know, it's, it's all a choice in how we choose to use our streets. And um, at the end of the day, we're making these choices every day. We have we have tons of transportation uh, funding available to us, we're going to have to fix the crumbling infrastructure. Glad you brought up sidewalks mm -hmm. because um, that is, I think, probably the top priority for Atlanta. We haven't invested in our sidewalks at all for years. Well, and again, I know I mean, people get mad because they email me when I talk about, particularly on on this, on certain side of the city, it was south southwest side of the city, where there are neighborhoods who just do do not have sidewalks. And kids trying to catch the school bus and, and folks in, in our older populations that live over there trying to catch martyr, not even a bus stop, not even a sidewalk. So if y'all want me to stop talking about that, then, you know, y'all know what to do. Now, the city has acknowledged that it's been over budget and behind schedule on many of the original T-SPLOS projects. And I said this before, I've lived here for a long time and the T-SPLOS initiatives come on a ballot, uh, you know, and then you wonder, OK, well, <laughs> What's actually happening? City council members have announced some measures to address accountability going forward. What would you all at, at Propel ATL like to see make sure that these funds are used appropriately and that there's equity involved? Absolutely. Yeah, we were really um, enthusiastic about the safeguards that council adopted. I think it's always good to see people learning from past experiences. So we all learned a lot, unfortunately, from the Renew Atlanta and T-SPLOST. Um, in the last go round. So I think what we want to see is a continuous conversation. Let's not forget about these projects mm -hmm. because there are a lot of projects on the last Tease Blast and Bond that we continue to follow and push for um, and that need that continued advocacy really from the grassroots level. So we encourage people to get involved in their neighborhood transportation committees. If you don't have one, we'll help you start one. Um, we have a group called Community Advocates Network that meets and it's just bringing people together that are involved at that neighborhood level because that's really where the accountability starts from, from people going, hey, what's going on with my street? 
Mm-hmm. I live on the street. I'm going to continue to pay attention to this. I'm not going to forget whether it takes five or six or seven years. Rebecca, how important is that? Because in each community, and it's the priorities might be different. You know, if you live over in no fourth ward, you know, the priorities, what you want may be very, very drastically different than, let's say, a, a community over on the southwest side or on the west side of Atlanta. So how important is it to have then these smaller pockets of groups working together? I think it's essential because we can learn from each other. Um, a lot of times what you'll see is uh, multiple neighborhoods along an existing high injury network street, one of the um, streets where the vast majority of people are getting killed um, in transit, um, are hearing different things or they're not aware of a project that maybe could be extended to connect their neighborhood and benefit the safety of their residents. Because the cross thread across all these communities, and we talked to Uh, community members all over the city and a lot of different neighborhoods and housing types and situations is they want to be safe. They want their kids to be safe. They want their grandparents to be safe. Um, So for example, we see a ton of traffic calming requests, stop signs, any other kind of thing that can Mm -hmm. slow people down. Um, And those are really flowing in from all over the city. So, you know, while the specific um, type of infrastructure that needs to happen on your street may vary from street to street or neighborhood to neighborhood, that cross thread of safety and that desire for for safe travel is pretty universal. Early on in the pandemic, when you all were ABC, you took a stance to support the city of Atlanta in, in not installing these safer street infrastructure because there were fewer drivers on the road. I mean, that we understood that it was a pandemic that had just started. But a lot of other cities did take the opportunity, you know, while there were fewer drivers on the road to fix, you know, potholes and create sidewalks and all that. Do you all, what went into that decision? And in hindsight, do you all think maybe you should have been, first of all, back up. Tell me about that decision. What went into that decision for you all? I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of that decision. The stance that we took was against implementing what they were calling slow streets, which was prohibiting anything except local traffic from streets during the pandemic when we knew so little. And, you know, the intention behind people who wanted this was good. They wanted more space to be able to spread out. And again, we knew so little. But when we saw what slow streets were looking like, it was looking like excluding people and preventing people from driving down streets without having the time or the bandwidth to do any kind of community engagement, Mm -hmm. especially in communities that were feeling the most stress from the pandemic, Mm -hmm. being primarily black and brown immigrant communities, people um, that had essential jobs. And in Atlanta, a lot of people with essential jobs rely on driving. Mm -hmm. So we just felt like at that point in the pandemic, when people were calling for slow streets specifically, that was not the time or the method. Now, we have never been against safer street infrastructure. Of course. Never, ever, ever. And we never will be against that. So I think there were some misunderstandings uh, that people had about our stance. Well, see, now you came on and you cleared it up. And I remember meeting you off the Beltline early on in the pandemic because we, everybody and their cousin, everybody had a bike. Boy, everybody was rushing to the store getting bikes. The Beltline looked like the Tour de France. It was just crazy. So everyone was out there biking. And you know what? It was it was kind of cool. What have you noticed, though, since, you know, obviously we've turned a huge corner in the pandemic? Are you still seeing folks understanding now that, you know what? Biking is and really should be a part of our overall initiatives and approach when it comes to mobility and transit because we had to rely on using bikes for some of us and it's not so bad. So you hope that momentum continues or is it slowing? 
we're seeing a lot of people continuing to ride bikes or do whatever they did to get around during the pandemic. Um, but we're also seeing a lot of people speeding. Um, so the percentage of pedestrians who were killed in 2021 compared with 2020, mm-hmm. it went up 150%. That's city of Atlanta? That's in the city of Atlanta. So we're really um, concerned about that. And just everywhere we go, we hear um, neighborhood folks saying people are speeding down our residential streets. And, you know, we're, we're really, really concerned about it. That's where all the stop sign traffic calming requests are coming from. Um, so unfortunately, that is a side effect where I think people got used to the um, traffic being less during the pandemic and um, adopted some driving behaviors that are really unsafe. And, you know, they're really damaging families. We talked to family members. Um, I talked to a woman whose sister was killed crossing mm. the street recently, and it's mm. heartbreaking. And I just don't think people take that into account. You know, there's a joy to this active transportation um, that I think the name Propel really captures. But we also have the other side of that, which is we have to propel the city forward when it comes to creating safe streets. Well, Rebecca, we've talked about this, too. And I've had this conversation with folks when it comes to talking about public transportation, people's perception, people's mindset around who's taking public transportation and why would I take public transportation it's the same thing when it comes to the whole, and it's beyond that, That, and I'm not calling it goofy, but the whole touchy-feely, share the road. Because let's be really clear, everybody don't want to share the road. And I was telling my, I remember seeing folks, with, I saw some folks with a shirt that said, I do not want to share the road. And a, a very disturbing image of, of someone who had looked like they had been hit, they were riding their bike. It's mindset. How do you, you get to change people's mindset? Because there are some folks like, the roads are made for cars and buses and therefore, and bikes should just, I mean, there are folks that believe that. I'm not making this up. You know that. Yeah. I think a lot of it is is culture and it's the stories we tell each other. And uh, something we're working on right now is a storytelling project to tell the stories of family members who are left behind. They lost a loved one due to someone, you know, maybe being unattentive behind the wheel or going too fast. Um, and I think if we can hold lift, hold lift up those family members' stories, um, then that can start to spark a change. It's happened in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that common thread going back to people wanting their own street to be safe, if you can start to have a little bit more empathy for someone, mm-hmm. a mother who's lost a, a child. Yeah, because um, there are other neighborhoods besides yours. Exactly. So before I get an email. Beyond a name and local change, what does Propel ATL mean now for the organization in terms of what you're doing? Yeah, it was really the change was sparked and, and started happening a couple of years ago when we learned about the high injury network and the um, disproportionate impact that those streets have um, and the fact that they're concentrated in the communities that are most affected by racial injustices. So it um, was really eye-opening. We started to shift towards safe streets advocacy at the time. We expanded our mission in 2019 to add in advocacy for people walking and riding transit then we merged with PEDS, a pedestrian safety organization, um, and then finally changed our name to Propel to kind of capture all of this and tie it together. And it's 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 a little it's kind of it's a little bit more hip. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever accused me of that before. So Atlanta Bicycle <laughs> Coalition. I mean, I'm looking at a T-shirt like it. Atlanta Bicycle Coalition Propel ATL. I mean, it looks it's, it's much better. We do have T-shirts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let, me ask, let me ask you this as we're going to wrap up, because we've been talking about leadership and, and the city efforts and all of this. Well, right now, the city of Atlanta has several high profile vacancies, including within the city planning department. And soon 
their Department of Transportation. What are you hoping in terms of who comes in to fill those roles? What kind of person would you like to see in terms of their vision, and especially if it includes or should include, you know, pedestrians and, and folk, you know, folks on bikes? Yeah, I always um, took heart to see our um, previous planning commissioner riding his bike down Peachtree Street, waving at everybody. Um, so I think someone who uses sustainable transportation, who rides the bus, who understands what that is, who walks, who understands what it's like to cross the street in Atlanta, mm-hmm. um, who understands um, the challenges that people biking and using scooters face, and also just the joy inherent in these different types of transportation. So someone who gets it on that personal level. Um, and then we're really looking for a continued commitment to the vision zero policy of trying to get to zero traffic deaths, zero serious injuries, mm-hmm. um, because the city is finally embarking on that action plan for vision zero. And it's really a key point. So we need a leader that's going to continue to prioritize that and really make an even bigger splash with it, um, make a bigger deal about it and help everybody understand that this is something that you hope it never affects your life or someone mm-hmm. that you care about. But the reality is um, that it could. And so let's change our streets and, and change the way we get around so that it doesn't have to. A listener sends me an email. Rose, aren't you anti-scooter? I am not anti-scooter. <laughs> I'm not anti-scooter. I'm, I'm pro-collaboration. <laughs> Except for the Share the Road t-shirts. You don't like those. <laughs> I do not like those. That No, I do not like the t-shirts that say I refuse to share the road um, because that's just ridiculous. But anyway, uh, Rebecca, <laughs> finally, my final question to you. What is your favorite neighborhood or path to bike through or on? I'm going to take that question and tell you about my favorite bus route. It's okay. the 21 Memorial Drive, and I love it because it comes pretty frequently. Mm-hmm. We're still on Saturday service right now, but back before those days, I could just walk out there, catch it, mm-hmm. um, and get all the way downtown to, to Five Points in a straight shot. Didn't have to think about it too hard, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of places to stop along the way. So my kids ride that, and they know that's how you get to the movie theater. That's how you get to, to downtown. All right. My, my producer... Daniel whispering in my ear. That's a good one. My producer, Daniel, is very pro bike. And and I should note, I'll make an announcement here. I, Rose Scott, am looking for a new bike. Just want everybody to know that. That's big news here. <laughs> you should definitely go to one of our many local bike shops because we have some great ones in Atlanta. Um, and then, Rose, we're going to get you into one of our, our free bike classes. I know we are. Well, here's the thing. I am not riding on the street just yet. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> I'm just, you know, but I, and, and here's the other thing too. I, I want an e-bike. Is that bad? No, oh, that's great. I love e-bikes. They okay. just flatten out the hills. You can get all over without worrying about being all sweaty. Um, you know, people like what they like, but I think e-bikes have definitely a place in the bike ecosystem. And in our classes, we also teach you how to take your bike on Marta because you can put it on the bus, put it on the train, and that expands your horizons even more. All right. So, see, I'm ready. I'm ready to be part of the solution and not the problem as a journalist. I appreciate that. Okay. Rebecca Cern is executive director of Propel ATL, formerly Atlanta Bicycle Coalition. As always, good conversation. I appreciate it, Rebecca. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm getting a bike. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel, who's also our engineer for today. As always, you can catch a rebroadcast of Closer Look tonight at 7 p.m. And as always, you know what? We have a podcast. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.